The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I am joined today by Symphony Vice President of Artistic Planning, Toby Tolikin. Welcome, Toby. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here well, on this sunny day. Absolutely. It's great to have somebody from my team on the show. We do all these conductors and singers and artists and directors, and Toby's an administrator like I am, and I want to talk a little bit about your job and what it means. Now, I've done artistic administration and planning in my career, as you know, and I've tried for years to describe the job of artistic administration, season planning. How do you answer that question? What do you do? I think almost you need to be diplomatic or or a diplomat first off uh, because you're dealing with what I call a multidimensional puzzle with juggling suggestions for repertoire guest artists, guest conductors from staff colleagues, and of course, it is a team effort. So it's not just the music director and me kind of making those things happen and just the two of us in a vacuum. It's many people involved in it. There's a lot of voices in the recipe. As it should be, you know, including the audience. We we also hear from them and saying, why are you doing this or why aren't you doing that? Right. Yeah. Right. So I think it's just a three to five, you know, dimension puzzle throughout. And, And you're dealing with the current period and then you're dealing with you know years out yeah and the nuts and bolts of your job is that you help maestro fisher along with all those other constituencies you mentioned plan the symphony seasons basically you you talk about programming with him you talk about guest artists with him you talk about the different series that the orchestra presents all of it right all in your all comes from your office and don't forget we also speak about budgeting oh yeah even that has to come into play because we sure. must be as frugal as we can. We Absolutely. are a nonprofit uh, yeah. organization. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your background a little bit. I'm curious what lured you into this crazy life of calendars and concert programs. I can tell you what lured me. I was a failed conductor. So I thought this was the closest way to be to the rep. So I tried a little of that in, in back in Connecticut where I'm from uh, with a community orchestra. But I must say, very honestly, I wanted to always be in an orchestra because I was very lucky to have a father, amateur violinist, clarinetist, who started teaching me the violin, mm-hmm. and an uncle, both growing up near the University of Connecticut. Yeah, we had in that era, when I was, say, five or six years old and onward, uh, the University of Connecticut had sometimes six to eight major orchestras coming through on tour between New York and Boston. Wow. So every year we would see Cleveland with Zell, Philly with Ormandy, occasionally Lenny with New York Phil because they didn't tour as much, always Boston Symphony with wh- whoever is conducting. Sure. So at a very early age, it was not weird to me yeah. to be sitting there and listening to concerts. I remember once going to hear Bruckner Five with Skrovacheski, who's still alive at 90 something. Still conducting. And too. and I saw a lot of people kind of zoning out yeah. and I was I was into Bruckner Five, so that shows you what a nerd I was. But I mean, the, <laughs> the real answer to the question is, I wanted to be in an orchestra and I didn't practice hard enough. I put it away in the summer, played baseball, and I regret that now because I would love the 10 weeks of paid vacation that uh-huh. the orchestra has sure, on occasion. Sure, sure. But to be behind the scenes and be involved with the repertoire is really so exciting. And that's really why I love it. When was your first administrative job? I had to wait 10 years 
it, it, even trying to interview for the American Symphony Orchestra, mm -hmm. as it was called then, the fellowship yeah. uh, for management. I never, I guess, did well enough in the interviews. I remember seeing Dan Gustin at the Boston Symphony, and I thought I did pretty well and didn't get the nod. So mm -hmm. uh, it was just a very lucky coincidence. I worked at the University of Connecticut in the School of Fine Arts, dealing with about 150 performances a year mm -hmm. at the hall there, including sure. a film series and everything that we did. Um, and finally, the Hartford Symphony was looking suddenly in, in one summer for someone to take over because the orchestra CEO had been asked to go away and the second in command moved up and uh -huh. needed somebody to deal with the summer concerts operationally. Yeah. And I was given a chance. I took a leave for that summer from the UConn job. And then I got called again in the fall and said, would you like to do this permanently? So that was my entree and it was just a lucky thing. You're right. There is a lot of luck and opportunity involved. Right. Um, I do want to talk about the places you've worked because I mm -hmm. think it's interesting your career. But let's first talk about kind of what you're doing on a daily basis. And, you know, first I'm going to tell you something that I think and I want to see if you agree with it. And since it's my show, I hope you do. Um, I, I've often felt I've often felt that in artistic planning to be successful, you have to speak conductor fluently. That's what I've often said to people when they ask what I did. And what I mean by that is you have to know how they think. You have to understand what's important to them, the kinds of suggestions they're going to respond well to, the sorts of things that you need to just not even put in front of them. It's not just about a relationship with another person, a colleague. Conductors are really different and understanding how they tick is a really important part of this work. Do you agree? Can you expand on that? Yeah, very much so. I always feel that I have to spend 10 times the amount of time I'm going to be speaking face-to-face -face with a music director or on a phone meeting with a music mm -hmm. director, which happens very often. The phone meetings sometimes happen more often than the face-to-face -face because they're traveling to other uh, assignments in their guest conducting world. Right. So I just feel I have the obligation to be super efficient because their administrative time is so precious because they need to spend time with scores. They need to be always studying. And that's what all the music directors ever work with were doing. Um, I can't really talk to you much now because even if you set up a phone meeting a week ahead, sometimes even that gets shortened sure. or altered. And so you got to be flexible. And I think you have to be really respecting their their time uh, and be just super efficient. And part of the luck I would say I've had is because of going back to this early repertoire uh, kind of um, uh, immersion mm -hmm. from the going to concerts. And I should also say my uncle and father were, were very good at listening to recordings, uh -huh. bringing recordings home. I'm old enough to have remembered 78s, if you can believe that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> They're coming back. <laughs> yes. But anyway, it, it, it was very lucky that the repertoire was already kind of being learned by osmosis, you might say. Yeah. I did want to ask you about repertoire because I, you know, when I, talk, when I joked about being a failed conductor, the thing that that provided for me in terms of preparation for this line of work was that I'd done a lot of score study. I'd done a lot of listening. I had a pretty broad knowledge of repertoire before I ever started thinking about artistic administration. And you and I both know that is a bare minimum requirement. You mm -hmm. have to know rep like a conductor knows rep. Yeah, that's true. Did you learn it along the way? Or, I mean, it sounds like you, got a, you had an early dip into the pool, but yeah. you just, yeah. is it something that you amass as you go? Right. And maybe, again, this is the, the musical nerd part. Um, <laughs> I, I, yes, I did know about, you know, popular music as I was growing up. I was aware of the Beatles. I, I know some people actually 
are so involved with classical music, they may have missed even that stuff. So yeah. I did did know what was going on yeah. uh, in in college, et cetera. But I just love spending money. I, I wish I had put it in the in the uh, annuity. Uh, but LPs, CDs, and just going to concerts yeah. and listening to music on the radio is kind of all the time. And yeah. and I get a lot done. I must admit, in the car. Uh, not that the commute is long, but whenever I have a chance to drive anywhere, I, I load in the CDs of what I need to, I feel, get get ready to learn. And, and Just a lot of yeah. listening then. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The way I masked my collection was back in the late 80s and 90s, there were these CD clubs you could join. And if you bought one disc at full price, you could get 10 for a penny or something like that. Yes. And I was yeah. doing that every couple of months. And I over the course of my college years, built... A several hundred strong classical music CD collection, which I still have, yes. still listen to. I'm not right. an MP3 guy. Right. No, <laughs> I, I I need to have the jewel box, Absolutely. and of course, my, I have to give my wife Mary a, a lot of credit for for dealing with. Uh, first of all, she allowed me to move the LP collection uh-huh. to three different places, uh-huh. including going from Connecticut to Seattle, Seattle to Indianapolis, and then Indianapolis to here. But Indianapolis to here was the last of the LPs. They were had to be left behind. Oh, really? And I agreed. It made sense that. So I donated them to the, uh, this very nice, uh, at the Indiana University in Bloomington, uh, there's a community orchestra there, and there's a record shop that actually accepts LPs, and then like, they get the money. The, the mm-hmm. community orchestra gets whatever percentage they sure. may get from selling the LPs. So yeah. I donated them, and uh, hopefully they're being enjoyed somewhere in, in the greater Bloomington area. It's the Toby Tolican collection well, the Bloomington yeah, I, Library. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't think I'm getting the credit for it, but hopefully. I'm glad you mentioned anyway. the places that you've been because yes. the, one of the things we have in common with the musicians on the stage is that we do move around a lot in this profession. Mm-hmm. I started in Florida, I moved to Utah, then I moved to Baltimore, then I came back to Utah. You mentioned the places you've been, and every one of those places had a different maestro relationship to yes. cultivate. Yes, very And much. I know you've worked with some really great conductors in your career. So tell us about how those relationships have sort of shaped your path. I was very lucky, as I said, to first get into the Hartford Symphony, uh, where Michael Lancaster, who was the music director at that time, uh, English-born, was brought to the States and was the assistant in Pittsburgh to Andre Previn at the time mm-hmm. that he got the job. And what was really exciting about, about the Hartford time of 10 years was not only learning a lot, but working with someone with his imagination. He started not only a family concert series that never existed there, but he started something called Classical Conversations, which I think is used by other people, uh, whether uh, in in concert format or, or individual pianist, I think, uses that title. But anyway, it was a very theatrically oriented look at a composer each time. Mm-hmm. And that that and the family concert series and his work on the subscription concert series, we were proud that that team in the 10 years kind of tripled the subscription base wow. at the Hartford Symphony, wow. which was an amazing thing because it's not a large community. And then interviewing with Jerry Schwartz for Seattle and also with Deborah Rudder, who was the CEO and is now running the Kennedy Center. Absolutely. Right. So I was honored to work with her and, and her team and Jerry. And the exciting part of Seattle was I got to go there before they built their concert hall. They mm-hmm. they had to share with the ballet company and the opera company one hall, the Opera House, which had 3,700 seats. The orchestra had to play fortissimo 
almost all the time and, and 30, it had to and had to retool to go into this beautiful rectangle the same acoustician that beat that uh, was our acoustician Cyril Harris at um, at a Bravanel was the Brenner Roy and that was his last uh, mm-hmm. hall before he passed on but anyway uh, it was just exciting to be able to move into that hall uh, have a, an, a great acoustic yeah. and have control of the schedule. The, the orchestra before that could not even play on weekends. There weren't dates. So um, there was this very interesting moment where um, the subscribers who lived just up the hill from the opera house and would in some ways just tumble down to the concert said, <laughs> we're not following you downtown. You have lost us forever. And we went from pairs of concerts to quads. So there so you, weren't enough of them, I guess, to uh, that abandoned us. We or actually somebody gained more willing some. Took their exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, uh, it was it was very exciting, uh, great exciting time, and there was a ability to because of the hall schedule now opened up this new hall, a visiting orchestra series and a, a visiting recital series of high guest artist names that the audience wanted. So I was able to bring Temer Konoff and and uh, St. Petersburg uh-huh. uh, Janssens with Pittsburgh. And by the way, one of the loudest fantastiques ever heard, you know, because that is a great orchestra and the brass just let it go. They play very well. Anyway, but it was just a a wonderful era. And then going to Indianapolis was to work, uh, the the big thrill there was to work with Mario Venzago, who is just a brilliant, uh, not only brilliant musician, but uh, taught the orchestra how to be flexible, to really have this incredible rubato uh, in its technique that uh, was certainly there before, but was now so many colors were added. Mm-hmm. And, and he almost was, felt like an older brother to me in, in the programming sense. I booked him as a guest conductor in several places where I've worked, and I yeah. was always incredibly impressed. And I, I think it's interesting to note that people don't realize sometimes how close these relationships are. I'm still in contact with all the conductors I've worked with, and I'm sure you are too. Yes. You maintain, yeah. Yeah. You know, you maintain these relationships over time, even when... They leave, you leave, things change, you know. Very true. They're still friends. Um, So a little bit of fun here, maybe, um, if you're willing to divulge. But people don't know, probably, that conductors and soloists in this business are represented by managers, agents, so to speak. And they're not entirely different than the kinds of depictions of agents you see for movie stars and athletes on television. What's it like working with them, negotiating the fees and the dates and everything? Do you have any kind of funny behind-the-scenes stories you can tell well, without naming names, maybe? I, I have a couple of funny stories. If we can go to funny and talk about a few conductors without naming them. Go for it. But the, the manager part I will just be very honest about. Um, it, it's not a lot of fun on the pop side, if I can just be very honest. Sure. Um, I have great relationships with classical managements because I think it's just – so much easier to deal with. Uh, yes, we sometimes have programming and fee disagreements, but usually you can get this done in a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say that the pops guest artists, I don't mean the pops indoor guest artists, I'm talking right. about the high named. The big summer touring The, the big summer touring artists, yeah, yeah. Uh, their managements, they're wonderful when they arrive, but their managements or their road managers mm-hmm. sometimes are really you diplomacy is not enough in in, in your bag of tools to be able to deal with them. And and that can be incredibly frustrating in the waste of time. That's, that's what, because we have so little time in any of these jobs at at, at orchestra level. But I, I did remember if I may use your funny story to remember 
it's not so funny. It was kind of sad, but it was <laughs> in, it was interesting. <laughs> well, because it's it's so bizarre when something these things happen in concerts that you can't imagine will happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's now passed away, but I, so I think I can mention it, it, his name, Hans Wank, mm-hmm. who was this fantastic uh, European conductor who was St. Louis Symphony's uh, conductor at the time I was at Seattle. And he came two different times g- generously to guest conduct. Yeah. And we were in literally the middle of the Beethoven Sixth Symphony, the Pastoral Symphony. And in, in about the third row of Benaroya Hall, a baby starts crying. And I don't mean crying it was wailing okay and the uh, no offense the ushers did nothing Mm. the mother with the child did nothing about maybe walking out with the child so hans actually stopped the piece and turned around and i mean if there could have been a video of the look (laughs) i mean i think not only did the 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 laser go through the woman and the child, but sure. I think the whole section that she was sitting in were vaporized they all felt just by the by look, yeah. you know, but yeah. literally he just, I mean, he didn't point yeah. to the exits, but he indicated that yeah. he was not going to continue yeah. or, or start again. So, I mean, it was, it was amazing. And, and I think he was right to do so. Well, I mean, and this this reminds me of, you know, the whole cell phone oh, thing yeah. that's going on now. I was but, say th- that. but this was before cell phones, believe it or not, but it was it <laughs> the wailing to, child. It used to be babies, now it's cell phones. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, please, just don't even bring your phone into the hall with you. And the, <laughs> the greatest crime is people who very conscientiously turn off their cell phone in the first half, go out to intermission, can't stand not to know what's happening. So they turn it on and forget to re-silence it in the second half. All of the rings of yeah. my career have happened in the second half yeah. of concerts, yeah. and I'm sure that's why. Yeah. And and it's not that we don't have some ability to be you know flexible on this right. issue, but right. I mean, when somebody is literally having to stop a performance because you can't hear the music, right? Because it, the it distraction is, is it is possible. The distraction has grown in volume beyond what I, the music can I, produce. I always hope that we could maybe put up a, a picture in concert halls that have Bella Lugosi with his cape. You know, with his arm up across his face, you know, that look from the famous horror films indicating this is what to do when you cough. Yeah. So that you could at least lower that decibel level. Well, you know, Fritz Reiner sometimes (laughs) wore a cape. We can maybe have him. (laughs) There you go. You know, Toby, you and I could do this absolutely all day. We've got a million stories, but... I do need to let you go. Before I do, I have that one final question, the one you've been dreading. It's the one we ask no, all of our no, guests. No, I thought it was, it was a very good one, so well, I, I hope I'm prepared. Well, I hope so, too, because <laughs> this is sometimes the most interesting part of the interview. I want to know, have you ever seen a ghost? Please explain. No, but I feel like I have maybe been amongst them in my many visits to uh, the summer home of the Boston Symphony over many years, Tanglewood, mm-hmm. which um, I started enjoying rehearsals and concerts in high school when I could drive alone there uh-huh, because yeah. I really wanted to do that, you know, solo and not have to have the parents do it. Of course. Um, so I was able to watch Bernstein conduct many, many times and seeing him conduct Copeland's third symphony with the student orchestra toward the end of his life was yeah. an amazing, amazing moment. I wasn't at his last concert in 1990, but I was at the dress rehearsal. Yeah. And in some ways he, he was almost a walking ghost at that time because sure. you know what happened. He was supposed to go with the orchestra to tour Japan, the student orchestra. And he announced right after the concert almost because he was feeling so uh, unwell that he not only was canceling the tour, but he was he was retiring from conducting. And mm-hmm. two months later, he was gone. So 
it's one of those things that um, I always feel that not only that person, but I was able to see Slava Rostropovich mm-hmm. conduct Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Mm-hmm. And it happened to end up being on the night or it was the day that Shostakovich literally passed away in August of 1975, being wow. at that concert. And Slava came out to announce to the audience that the great composer had passed away Incredible. earlier that day and yeah. held up the score, and it was an amazing moment. Incredible. But also, I think the ghost po- point is not only those people that are gone, probably still enjoying the lawns there uh, when they feel like it, in uh, when the audience is gone, but people like, the composers that I've taught there in all these summers from the 40s, you know, Berio was there, Messian was there, Martinu was there, right. Hindemith was there, Copeland, of course, was there, many, many others. So I feel all of those great composers, which is what we're all about. You know, we, we, we love live performance, but who is actually giving us this music? It all these starts these with amazing the composers. It all starts with and the score. If you, you may not like them, but I, I just hope they're all having fun there. Well, yeah. I, that's that's a wonderful story, and the idea. That, I know you go back to Tanglewood when you can, and yeah. the idea that they're sitting next to you on the lawn is, I think, pretty appealing. Yeah, and I do want to mention that if you have never been to the summer home of the Boston Symphony, yeah. I think it's worth one trip to Lenox Mass in your lifetime. It's not just to see the Boston Symphony, but the grounds are sure. just beautiful, to say the least. Uh, the whole area is lovely. And uh, to hear the students and to see their enthusiasm, the student orchestra, which is put together with musicians from around the world, right. is, is extraordinary. Last year, Dutois, uh, Charlie Dutois, who's now 80 years old, who, by the way, looks he's like he's about 60. So I don't know what he's doing, but doing it's, it right, it's amazing it um, that that orchestra played the Rite of Spring as great as any orchestra could do technically in the world right now. And they're just stu- wonderful students. Well, it, it is one of the Vaticans of our profession, Tanglewood. So please, well, very well said. Thank so you. Please do trust Toby on that and go, Toby. This has been a great conversation. Thanks. We need to do this again. Thank Thanks. you so much for being on the Ghost Light Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks very much. This weekend, Utah Symphony musicians return to Abravanel Hall as music director Thierry Fisher leads the orchestra in the music of Brahms with his Second Symphony and Academic Festival Overture. Guest cellist Narek Haknazarian performs Shostakovich's first cello concerto in his Utah Symphony debut. Tickets and information are available at utahsymphony.org. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera's season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>